The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe Sunday, September 23rd, 2007 Sing when you're winning Saturday, 22nd of September, 2007 Arsenal 5, Derby County 0 I'm queuing for a beer in the old triangle trying to ride the wave of bodies to the bar when something on the dark wood dresser at its rear catches my eye there stood side on amongst the old Guinness bottles, period toucan statues, an Irish knickknackery, is a 12 inch vinyl album, Natty Dread by Bob Marley and the Whalers. As I edge closer, I can see that its sleeve has been covered in silver scrawl by a variety of hands. I get within elbow resting reach of the pumps and catch the young barmaid's eye to order up my Stella. As she's pouring it, I ask her if the signatures on the, the album cover are those of Bob and the Whalers themselves. She doesn't reply, just gives a private, knowing smile, so I'm left none the wiser. But something is welling up inside me as I pocket my change and take my pint outside, as if I've been let in on an in-joke, made privy to the crack. It's as if her silence is saying, Believe whatever you want to, love. And I suppose I already do, imagining as I am those languid Caribbean signatories obliging a request made in this dark North London pub in 77 when Bob and the band lived over here and probably popped up this way to see a game. It's a nice feeling, so why let an inconvenient truth spoil it? Better, surely, to be like this, soothed, uplifted and feeling as warm inside as the day. And what a glorious day it is. The sun bears down upon my forehead as I squat to read my programme. The sky above the tidy terraces opposite the, the pub is Mediterranean. Any clouds that interrupt its Victoria line blue are fluffy, white, high and friendly. The sunny street is a carnival of red and white, yellow and blue. The ladies are out in force in their summery, feminised replica tops. The white sleeves of the male variety all but dispensed with in favour of armpit-hugging isosceles. The whole cut is more petite. No handbags at their feet. Instead, they slow dance around the odd unnecessary fleece and a triangle of empty bo bottles and a half-drunk Smirnoff ice. It feels more like an August bank holiday than a late September day as the heat sets tiny trickles of sweat rolling down my sunscreened neck. All in all, the perfect day to buy myself a woolly Arsenal scarf. I'd seen them being twirled and twizzled by the red action wedge on the opposite side of the ground from me during the Sevilla game and had to have one. Red action are trying to get a bit more atmosphere going at the new ground, but the problem with the lack of noise predates the Emirates. They didn't call our old ground the Highbury Library for nothing. But today there seems to be a different buzz. Perhaps it's just the afterglow of the win at Tottenham, or down to the encouraging display in midweek. It could be the effect of Matt Lucas's comic guide to defending the Arsenal way that has us chortling when they show it on the big screens. Or maybe the crowd knows with a certainty deep down in their bones that we'll beat, we'll beat Derby today, and that it's just a matter of by how many. Regardless of the whys and wherefores, there's a newly appreciative response to the wonder of you that makes me think it might eventually catch on. I hope so, but I still can't imagine too many people singing along. 
I sing along anyway, spirit and voice buoyed by two quickly downed beers and the cheesy grandiosity of the king. So the day starts well and just keeps getting better. First Diaby scores. That's right, the same tall-framed Diaby who blasted against the bar at the lane last weekend and haplessly missed a sitter at Cardiff that might have won us the Carling Cup earlier this year. He jinks past two defenders before unwinding a curling shot of such certainty that it comes as, as, as more of a surprise to the Arsenal fans than the petrified Derby defence. Then Adebayor breaks through the centre from a clipped Fabregas ball, rounds the keeper and slots home. Fabregas puts Walcott through on goal with an unbelievably astute first-time pass out of nowhere that deserves a goal that the youngster can't supply. The second half opens with a tug on Eduardo, formerly the striker formerly known as Prince, now Cuban dancer Carlos Acosta, inside the Derby penalty area. Adebayo slots it home. Then, with Danielson warming up on the touchline to replace him, it's almost as if Fabregas realises that if he's going to score today, he'll have to do so pretty damn quick. So, naturally, he does dispatching another blasted shot that perhaps may not have beaten a better keeper, but is venomous enough to have poor Stephen Bywater grasping at thin air. It's then left to Adibayo to seal his hat-trick with a marvellously athletic leap to bring a high crossfield ball down on the edge of the area. This initial controlling of the ball is improbable enough without his having been at, tugged at by the black bandana-wearing leacock, but Addy isn't done yet regaining his poise, then showing icy coolness to wait his moment before slotting the ball home imperiously for 5-0. The crowd, those of us who stay, are starting to applaud the huddle now. The players' expression of their togetherness works in synergy with our appreciation of it to fill the stadium with a proud, expectant hum. The word is spreading. We're all starting to believe a bit now especially as we hear the news come through as the hopeful, faithful throng descends the staircase that Liverpool can only draw nil-nil at home to Birmingham. We are top of the league, say we are top of the league, they chant, and we are three points clear with a game in hand. I decide to make my way to block 31 for the Arsenal Extra Time event. Depending upon your degree of cynicism towards the modern game, the extension of the matchday schedule beyond the final whistle is either an inspired means of simultaneously spreading the dispersal of over 60,000 fans away from the ground, whilst allowing the fans to enjoy a cheap post-match beer, or another means of screwing every last penny out of us. I take my £2.50 pint of watery fosters and stand a few yards back from the stage, Two young lads are doing a karaoke version of that Kaiser Chief song about someone called Ruby. Wrapped by the auto-cued lyrics, they begin an, in a nervous shuffle, but grow into increasing show-offs, mumbling their way through the verses, only to burst into a series of loudly bellowed, oh, Ruby, 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 Rubies! Which, for all their enthusiasm, remain tangential to the actual tune of the song, in all aspects aside from its metre. Next up is Bob. Bill Jupiter's on the third day of a hunger strike, who implores us to sing Oh Arsenal in the whoa, 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 bits of The Wonder of You before proceeding to do a superb impersonation of a completely tone-deaf Elvis Presley, gargling. 
Bob is followed by Gooner Jim, who comes on with all the uh, finger-pointing, hand-shucking confidence of Finsbury Park's own M&M, only for a broken microphone to somewhat reduce the impact of the opening verse of Ziggy Stardust. A real trooper. He soldiers on unheard, at last becoming audible somewhere around the screwed up eyes and screwed down hairdo mark before doing something quite clever with the lyrics, changing became the special man into a Jose Mourinho special one jibe. Again, I find myself singing along, even going so far as to join in with a despairing high-pitched No! After the when the kids had killed the man, I had to break up the band line. All in all, Gooner Jim is bang on the money with his impersonation of Phil Cornwall impersonating David Bowie in Stella Street. Then, as if by way of a skewed tribute to the special one, we get a blast of Brian Adams' The Summer of 69. Jose is, by all accounts, a big fan of Mr Adams, though he is thought to be more of a Phil Collins man, if you believe Zoe Williams, whose excellent rise and fall piece in Saturday's Guardian nicely encapsulates our love-hate relationship with the, these are nice words to be typing, former Chelsea boss. But the song has another significance. That, That year saw the debut for Arsenal of a very special player. As you'll have guessed, there had to be some very special reason for me staying on through this karaoke, mullet-clad stadium rock hell. And just as I'm about to give up on the whole thing, out comes the man we've all been waiting for. Charlie George. He's a well-chosen Arsenal legend for this fixture, even if the programme is advertising an appearance by, of all people, Perry Groves. But even though he also played for today's opponents, Derby County, Charlie really is Arsenal through and through. You couldn't really sum up the player, I really only recall from that one often replayed strike at Wembley in a million words, but two words will do just nicely for the man on stage before me, who, as he is now, could be a fairly anonymous clerical worker after one too many sherbets, reluctantly accepting a long service award at the work's Christmas due. Diamond Geezer. He plays the room with the same cockiness that I remember from those 70s highlights shows, hamming up a feigned impatience as the gooners in the room go through the repertoire of terrace chants he's set up for them with a put-it-on-a-plate-for-you assist. There's only one Dennis Bergkamp. Oh, Rocky Rocky, Rocky 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 Rockcastle, shit club no history. You can almost believe the myth Nick Hornby crystallised in fever pitch that Charlie vaulted over the low white wall that separated his patch on the north bank directly onto the Highbury pitch. He goes through his stock Arsenal legends after dinner speech patter. How did they celebrate the 1971 Cup final? Brandy and champagne. But Charlie, this said with a straight face, never touched a drop, of course. His all-time favourite Arsenal player? Bergkamp. Who else? There's a gag about the Chelsea grounds, groundsman winning the Pitch of the Year award. Hardly surprising. It has had all that crap on it all year. Asked about the famous 71 celebration, he still can't exactly tell us why he did it. He'd done the same thing in an earlier round at Main Road on a damp Manchester night, lying down in the mud, just as he, just as he would again on the final day at Wembley on that glorious summer day luxuriating like a prince in a bath made from gold. 
He knows the ebbs and the flows of the fans. Would still rather, you feel, be here with us, joining in with the singing, not signing programmes for the kids and orchestrating our chanting from the elevation of the stage. But in a way, he is with us now, just as he is with us in the cheap seats and not the corporate bores he's asked to turn up and tell his tales for in the swanky corporate zone. He's with us in his heart, as he has been since he was a kid, dancing and clapping with us in the rhythm that we found after the fifth. Charlie George is dancing with us and not the money men, clapping along to the same silent groove that makes the young hip blade a few seats down the line from me swing and sway, clapping and swaying in his 70s throwback t-shirt and a scarf the same as mine. We swing and sway, clap and sway, swing and sway and clap and say, we love you, Arsenal. We do. We love you, Arsenal. We do, we love you Arsenal, we do, Arsenal, we love you. And then as the Q&A comes to an end, there's a quiz to win a mobile phone. Who scored the winning goal for Arsenal in the 1970s Fairs Cup? I don't know the answer, but I do notice a beguiling bob-haired brunette standing aloof at the side of the stage. She has one of those faces that you can't help but stare at, an elf in Colleen who seems somehow to be above and beyond the fray. My gaze returns to Charlie, about to hand over the prize. A bulky, blonde-haired guy in his mid to late forties gets the answer right. John Samuels scored the goal that won us our first ever European trophy. Charlie hands over the phone, then grabs the winner's hand and holds it up. The guy who won the prize only has three fingers and a thumb on one hand. I didn't tell you he was my brother, did I? Charlie laughs and barks, then holds up his own right hand for all to see. He must be double-jointed, or this is some skilful sleight of hand, because Charlie's index finger is missing too. But no, it's true. I looked it up, not believing my own eyes, still rubbing them in disbelief like a shell-shocked Ray Clements as the ball cannoned down from the back of the Wembley net. And with that, like some medicine show charlatan, he's whisked off into the early evening breeze, a cordon of stewards around him, and a bob-haired Colleen at his side. Passing Chelsea Harbour on the train back home, a huge expanse of low grey cloud covers West London. Its edge is traced out like a border by a line of brilliant gold that hovers just above the horizon, the displaced light of the steady setting sun. Your day is nearly done. You recall the hopeful sunny skies you've not long left behind, the songs and the goals, and Charlie George and his three-fingered hand. Make the most of this, you think. Sing when you're winning, because it won't last long. Sing now, because there's another week before you'll sing again, another week to be filled with the usual frustrations, the things you'll do you do not want to do, the ongoing despair. You can only sing when you're winning. Saturday, September 29th, 2007. Chess on grass. Saturday, 29th of September 2007. West Ham nil, Arsenal 1. It's sometime between 1990 and 1998. Jumpers for goalposts on Twickenham Green. The skins are three goals up against the shirts. Or maybe the shirts are leading the skins 2-1. No matter, there's a game going on. Or at least there would be, if it wasn't for some idiot who has decided to walk his dog diagonally across our, admittedly, unmarked pitch. 
The game stops while we wait for Skip or Sandy or Towser, the Labrador, to finish doing its business and continue on its way. The field motionless except for, for hound and owner until eventually canine bowels voided, poop duly scooped. They are at last trotting across our admittedly imaginary touchline and have left the field of play. The disruption over, Steve, the skins goalie and the drummer in our band, takes it upon himself to run full pelt across the pitch, shaking a small, goalkeeping gloved fist at the hapless dog and its antisocial owner as they head towards the pavement. Oi, you! he yells out after the thoughtless dog handler. How would you like it if I came round your house, barged into your living room and dumped on your chessboard? A bit harsh, you might think. You can see his point though, can't you? Because that, in effect, is what this bloke's dog has just done. This is, after all, the equivalent of our chessboard. We don't just play football, you see. This is chess on grass. Steve's a West Ham fan, as is Marky Mark. Mark is the tall, lanky one, a taller, more slender Peter Crouch. Steve's about half his height, balding and small-handed due to having a set of finger joints missing from both hands. Not exactly ideal for a goalkeeper, but he makes up for this shortcoming through enthusiasm, when he isn't chasing after his wind-tossed goalie's cap when he should be keeping goal. Not exactly ideal for a drummer either, but that's another story. That figure ambling along the touchline will be Marky Mark, arriving 30 minutes into the game, as insouciant off the pitch as on, a silk-cut ultra in one hand and a small bottle of beer in the other. He's a languid player, a joy to watch even though he has no pace. Not much power either, just a good footballing brain. He makes it look easy when he's in the groove. He and Squeaky Paul exemplify the Twickenham Green ethos. Keep the ball on the deck, pass your way out of trouble, play it out from the back. It's not football, you see, it's chess on grass. And that's the way we play. We even have a motto, in Latin, like a proper football club. Nonus shittus defensus. Roughly translated, it means stay calm and pass the ball at all times. They'll both be there at what passes for the half-time team talk. Less a talk than an exhausted, extended fag break, which may or may not encompass a swig of beer. Marky Mark and Squeaky Paul will spend it bent double, hands on knees, marked like a construction site crane that has been lowered to half-mast, coughing a cough that uproots half a lung. Then it's back on the board, with all the other pieces, knights and pawns and rooks and kings. Set the timer for another 45, another gambit, a few more moves... Another game of chess. Chess on grass. It's a football aesthetic closely identified with today's opponents, West Ham. The club holds a special place in the hearts of many fans of English football and the higher pursuits of the game. If only because of its triumvirate of homegrown World Cup winners and famous and long-standing academy. West Ham is a club that many followers of the game find hard to dislike. Until, of course, they start beating you with any regularity, as they now do Arsenal, home and away in the last campaign, and at Highbury the season before that as well. The first of last season's wins was at Upton Park, or as I prefer to call it, the Bolin Ground. 
The club's then manager, Alan Pardew, celebrated the Hammers' last-minute goal as if his side had once again, as its fans will tell you with a smile they did in 1966, won the World Cup, not just a Premier League game, at home. Fist clenched provocatively under the nose of our French coach, it was as if their earlier verbal jousting about Arsenal's lack of English players had spilled out into the more explicit expression of a familiar form of footballing xenophobia that of the English football hooligan. Not without shirts, these skins have no hair and wear DMs. But another Irons fan, Russell Brand, is hopefully more representative of his ilk. In today's Guardian, he praises Wenger, a mystic, a shaman, an alchemist, who's beautiful, more royal than ever, Arsenal. Ah, he says, they're undoubtedly foreign make-up notwithstanding, closer to the spirit of English football than many of their more obviously indigenous opponents. With the sort of magnanimity you can only have when you've won your last three head-to-heads, Brand says Wenger could feel a team of ravens and be closer to the game's essence than most, and I hope for West Ham's sake that he does. Sadly for Russell and other fans of the Irons, Wenger resists the obvious temptation to test out the strength of his experimental Corvid 11 and makes only two changes from the team that started against Derby. Kleb returning from injury to replace Walcott on the right side of midfield, Van Persie back for the injured Eduardo. Alex is on just long enough to provide the cross from which Van Persie heads the only goal of the game before limping off, having only just returned from injury for the visit to, to the East End. He's down injured for what seems, from the tortuously protracted radio commentary, to be most of the first half. He's replaced by Ebue, and almost immediately John Murray and Steve Claridge start to complain that the game has become fractured and fragmented. They really ought to listen to their own shows a bit more before they start making outrageous judgments like that. The attention of the poor West Ham or Arsenal supporting listeners is whisked this way and that, here, there and everywhere, from Nantes to Ascot, by way of pretty much every football league ground in the country. Anywhere else, it seems, is preferable to staying with the events of the featured commentary game and recounting them as they unfold at the bowling ground. You could get a clearer picture of what was happening on the field of play by reconstructing the action in a game of blindfold of shove halfpenny with 22 identical coins. We get a furlong by furlong account of the closing stages of the Phillies stake. Listen edges out proviso to win by a short head. Minute by minute updates of Australia's romp against Canada a game even the most optimistic Canuck will presumably have written off as a likely defeat. Although there is, I have to admit, much mirth to be had as Wales fall 25-10 behind Fiji in the Rugby World Cup and Chelsea have Drogba sent off on their way to a dismal 0-0 draw in the West London derby with Fulham. In the end, as far as I can gather from the stuttering volley of sentences interrupted by protracted cutaways to anywhere but Upton Park that passes for five lives coverage, Arsenal hang on to win. That nonus shitter's defences seems to be catching on. The Arsenal side goes into October on the top of the pile on the back of eight straight wins across the board. If we're looking for an early story to shape the season, it could well be this. It's not about whether you win so much as it is about how.
This argument has already seen off the special one, whose name is sung out by the disenchanted blues fans at Stamford Bridge. Aside from the fact that all the fancied teams have already ground out 1-0 wins, you wonder if something higher than winning or losing were not perceived to be at stake. Might not Mourinho still be there, in his black overcoat, doing just that at the bridge? Russell Brand frames it nicely, quoting Arsene Wenger's comments about the fans being the soul of the game. He spoke of fans as the keepers of the game, which is a further nod to the civic, if not sacred, nature of the sport. Amidst the swirl of scandals, the rumours, the ignoble chatter and the limitless tainted money, something chaste and sacred remains and it belongs to us, the fans, and cannot be bought, sold or branded. Perhaps he's right. I hope so. But then, it's like we've always said, it's not really football. This is Chess on Grass.